Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. While the journey can oftentimes feel lonely, just remember, you're not alone. I also hope you're doing well. I'm not sure how your summer is going. It is a very trying time in our industry between writer's strike and now SAG joining in and all the necessary fights that are happening to create a more equitable and sustainable industry. I hope, however your summer is going, that you're being kind to yourself and practicing a lot of self-care. That is for sure a good use of this time. I am actually on production on a documentary, so I will be a bit out of touch for the next month or so, and we'll be doing new episodes only in the fall, so I hope you delight yourself as this is probably the last episode of the summer. And we close out summer with a killer conversation with the very inspiring and nimble Noelle Green. She is a senior physical production executive on the original series team at Netflix, where she's worked on films such as The Mother, Extraction 1 and 2, The Irishman, Bird Box, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, to name a few. Prior to Netflix, Noelle was a VP in physical production at Legendary Pictures and oversaw such projects such as Kong Skull Island and early prep on Pacific Rim Uprising. The majority of Noelle's career was spent freelancing as a production supervisor or production coordinator. She eventually began working as a line producer in the 90s and shares that she often found herself as the only woman of color on huge sets of 500 or more people. This experience planted a seed that eventually led her to be one of the founders of the Producers Inclusion Initiative, a joint effort between Netflix and Shondaland to help bring up more underrepresented people in the line producer path. It's truly important work that I cherish, and I'm so grateful that she's helping create opportunities for so many. She's committed to doing her part to leave the industry better than she found it. In this episode, Noelle takes us through digging into her grit to go from struggling single mother to a Netflix exec. She speaks on the importance of inclusion in the workplace and shares her wisdom on how she dealt with the frustratingly impermeable boys club. So without further ado, here's Noelle. I'm so excited we finally get to do this. I know. It's good to see you. I always like to start at the beginning, you know, um, take us to the top of your journey. At what point did you discover this business and figure out that there was this role of producer that you wanted to pursue? I'm just a girl from Virginia, a little small town in Virginia who grew up watching entertainment and was always obsessed and admiring it and knew that I wanted to be a part of it one day. And when I graduated high school, I got on a plane and flew west to go to college in L.A. and to permanently stay here, which is what I've done. That's impressive. Where did you go and how did you know that, like, you wanted to be in this business and that L.A. was was the calling for you and not New York? I would say very interesting. You know, what's interesting with L.A. versus New York is film and series just was conceived in Hollywood and was always set up in Hollywood because of the weather and there was more filming opportunity because you had more sunny days. And I just like the open land more than the big busy city. So I think the climate was a big pull there. 
Yeah. A lot of people say that, that the weather was kind of what brought them out. They just wanted to get away from it, have nicer weather. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice. It is nice that we have this great weather and then that, yeah, Hollywood really is hubbed here or at least the beginnings of it. Right. It's like a lot more uh, bifurcated these days, but okay. So then you decide what school did you go to at university? I went to USC and I wish I could say I was in the film school, but I was not because I was luckily on a track scholarship. Oh, cool. And all of my time was taken up by track and the film program did not marry up to the track program. And so I ended up majoring in communications, which was awesome. John Singleton was in the film program. Oh, amazing. USC. And he'd be, I remember seeing him walking to film classes. I was at track practice. I knew I could never get there, but um, majored in communications, which is still touches, you know, the entertainment industry and When I graduated, I was so excited to get into it. I wasn't sure which part of the business to enter into. So I worked for a temp agency that placed me at music companies and film and television companies. I ended up landing at a company called the Roberts Company, which was then called Stampede Entertainment. And their first movie was a film called Heart and Souls with Robert Downey Jr. and Alfre Woodard and Charles Roden. And I remember going into the producer's office and saying, I know I've been working in development with you and reading scripts, but this is not my forte. And we're about to make a film. And I think my forte will be on set. Can I please go and do this show with you? And she said, yes. How did you know that? How did you have that sense already that that's where your strengths were going to be? Because every time I read a script in development, I always imagined making it, not developing it. I knew that developing the story was not where my top skill was. It was actually how much is this going to cost to make and where do we make it and how do we make it? So then she said, yes, she said, yes. And off we were on this film called Heart and Souls, which shot at Universal and up in San Francisco. And I absolutely fell in love with the process. Tell me about the moment you step on that set for the first time and you see the, the beautiful chaos that is production. What is that feeling? What do you remember of that time? I remember my first day in prep. And I remember going from the office at Stampede and being in development and letting that go and walking into the bungalow on the Universal lot and being surrounded by the hustle and bustle of people not focusing so much on the script, but focusing on the production plan. And I was so excited by that, seeing all the cast up on the walls that used to do that back in the day and the big calendars with the schedule laid out and all the different opportunities um, for the production plan and everyone standing in a hub and holding their coffee and scratching their head and trying <laughs> to figure out the plan. Like I, I, I knew that's where my passion was. That's where my passion was. And I dove into it immediately in a way I hadn't with development and I've never left production since it's and that was probably 1992. Oh, my goodness. And so then how how was the pathway then for you? So you you shadow this producer or you worked as an assistant, I guess? I worked for her on set. And then how did you pivot into that into the next the next thing for you? When the film was over, we had to pack up and go back to the office. And when we went back to the office, I thought, I can't go back into development again. I am I want to be back on set. I want to be prepping and in production. That's the cycle where I belong. And so um, 
John Singleton was starting up a film called Rosewood. His team reached out to me to see if I'd be interested to work on it. I went and met with the line producer who needed an assistant on the show, and he hired me. I went back to Stampede and said, thank you for my time here. It's been invaluable. I built my foundation. I understand development and how that part of the business works and selling scripts, but I'm going to go and live on set for the rest of my career. And so then you go from being an assistant to him. At what point do you figure out, all right, for me to go up that path, if that's what you were looking to do, that you had to, you know, do the coordinator to PM supervisor role? Like what was, how did you, did you just learn that, I guess, by watching how it unfolded on sets? I keep saying higher learning. Was it higher learning or Rosewood? It was higher learning. So higher learning was my second film. And when I was in the production office working for the line producer on my second film, I thought, I'm not going to be learning whether I love production or not on this film. I'm going to watch every single department and understand, again, where my skill set lies. And I found myself in the production office, getting to know the production office coordinator and the production manager and being most fascinated and intrigued with their process because they were owning the whole show and they got to touch on everything. And so... After that film, I went right into the production office. And how long were you there? How long did you have to stay in each of the roles before you were able to move up to the next role? I was an assistant coordinator first, and I think I did that twice. And I, I jumped up to production coordinator. You know, what's interesting now, Carolina, people don't do one job for a long amount of time or an entire career. But I was a production coordinator for 10 years which nowadays that would be like a career as a coordinator. People move up after three or four shows, but I really got to know it very, very well. And I absolutely loved it. And I had fears about moving up because um, it was such a big jump to be go from coordinating to being a UPM. I was so scared of that, but I eventually after 10 years made that jump. Okay, why were you scared is my first question. And the second is, was there never the supervisor title or role in a lot of the films or projects you were a part of? The supervisor role was not big back then. It was really mm. just coordinator, UPM, line producer. During my career time, the supervisor role popped up and became more and more prevalent. So I actually did go from coordinating to supervising first. It scared me so much because as the production coordinator, you're like central hub and your job is to be organized and to support every single department and report back to your boss. When you move up to supervising, you're in charge of negotiating everyone's deal and every single department's budget. And you're not learning that skill set as a coordinator. So you have the strong foundation, but you don't have that skill set yet. So it's a scary jump. But once you do it once, you you get into the swing of it. Yeah. And it's the type of thing, too, where you can't really learn it until you're doing it. Yeah. It's like you can watch someone else do that job all day long. But until you're in those shoes, having to deal with the nuances of that, that's when you kind of like it really solidifies. But I think it's true that like it, it almost seems like nowadays – if you're so, if you're someone who's chosen to stay as a court at the coordinator level for a decade, people almost like look down on that. You know, like why would you just do that? Why don't yeah. you want more? Why don't you want to climb to the next level? Yeah. And I actually think there's no shame in like being like, I'm really good at this. Coordinators make good money. It's a union role. You know, they they have great health insurance. Like to say yeah. this is where my strengths are, and it, it is. It's not that it's less stressful, but it's certainly less responsibility in a lot of ways. And I think it is a different skill set, too, because you, you're not dealing with people in the same way, to your point. 
I'm glad you frame that because there are plenty of people that are career coordinators and it is a fabulous career and it is very good money. There's so many people that are hustlers in the business and it's the American way is to keep moving up. Oh, I know it's like a sickness. I, yeah. I, I suffer from it for sure. Me I mean, it's like, and I think there's also that, you know, think the way that perhaps the way the business has shifted people, people also talk down at you for that, you know? Like I certainly have experienced that in my career. Like, like you're you're still only doing this. Like, oh, but I thought five years ago you were doing that. Like, how come you haven't yeah. elevated in this way? But I've also had the good fortune of working with some like really seasoned career coordinators or certain roles that you're just like, wow, this is so much better when you're, especially on the indie side, working with someone who just really knows the job intimately and you don't have to be training someone every time as you're also doing your job because you're helping bring people up, which is is a great thing, but it does come at the expense of whoever is above them having to really take that extra step to make sure that they're learning their job, they're doing their job well, but also learning a little bit of your job so that they can sort of start stepping into that, you know? Absolutely. I actually, as I, when I got my first supervising job, I have two close friends that are like big sisters in the business. And they both said, come over to my house, I'll print a budget and a hot cost and a cost report for you. And I'll talk you through all three documents. And that really got me going. And then even when I was at work in that seat, I was calling them, how much does a best boy normally make? And what is it normally for a camera package per week? And you just lean into your resources. And like you said, trial by fire, you get there. And I and I thank you for saying that because my perception of the business when I started is that somehow you're just supposed to know all these answers. And like, if you don't, that you're, you're just not good at your job. But what you learn is that this pathway is really for people who are endlessly curious, who are okay to like be problem solving in real time all the time anyway. And similarly, I've had many incredible women and mentors in my life pulled me aside and explained to me how these things work. Because it maybe if you went to film school or AFI or some of these programs that are more specific to producing, they break this down for you. But oftentimes, it's it's almost like gatekept until you are given, until you're entrusted with that knowledge and then people are willing to show you and kind of lift the hood and be like, here's actually how it functions. But until then, you don't you don't know that. Like I didn't know when I was starting out, like where you get rates and how there's different IA contracts and you can't yeah. just like, it's not a blanket for everything. And, um, and I think it's important to have that community that you can lean into because you're right, like None of us do this alone, and even me till this day. I mean, we have we met through WPS, the Women's Production Society, which is the best resource in my professional life, honestly. Like the people that are in there are just all the best women in Hollywood who know production are in this group. And it just is like a treasure trove of humans like us. And you're like, my people, you know? It is pretty fabulous. It's so fabulous. And just to be able to say, I'm in, I'm having this challenge and I need this resource and who has done this and who has this experience. And someone always raises their hand to help. And um, it's part of that, I think, giving back, which I know is so important to me. I know is hugely important to you. But I think it's important for people listening to, to hear this because there is this perception that you have to have all these answers or know all these things. And the business loves to portray this idea of the fake it till you make it. And I actually don't subscribe to that idea at all. I actually think that's really dangerous. Me too. I think it's about being humble enough to ask the questions, but then learn quickly, you know, and know that you have learned enough of a baseline of 
whatever it is that whatever level you're at, that you're actually ready to step to the next level, but you've, you've mastered sort of where you are. You're not faking that you have figured out how to be a great coordinator who's hungry for the next level, you know, or whatever pathway you're in. So, so I think that's really um, important that you said that because I, I didn't know that coming up and I felt like, embarrassed that maybe I should have known I should have right shooting all over myself like we all should have known these things that you just kind of learn again as you're as you're climbing and learning the ropes and with every experience you've you've learned a new skill set it's truly it's a career path that's for very specific kinds of people (laughs) you know you know what I will drop a gem for the listeners which is because I coordinated for 10 years and I took my time I never had to fake it till you make it because I don't subscribe to that either. So if you want to be a producer, one, I guess, define for us how you define a producer. And then two, how does one go from the coordinator pathway into producing if they're coming up through the production office? So I'll speak specifically about line producers, which these days are called executive producers. So we're not talking creative producers. We're talking line producers that are the ones overseeing the production period. And for coordinators, their path to becoming a line producer is everyone has to find their own path first and foremost. So I don't like to be too prescriptive. But when you are coordinating, I would advise that you learn as much as you can about the supervisor's job and the line producer's job. So when it comes time for you to take your big jump, it's not as scary as it was for me. I kept my head down and really focused on the coordinator job and loved that I had mastered it. But I wish that my last couple of years, I had spent more time on set, standing next to the line producer, um, in in the UPM's office, watching them sign time cards. And, and getting to know their job a little bit more, that just would have set me up for success more. I still didn't have to fake it because I knew the job well enough, but that's advice that I would definitely give. And then when you're in that supervisor and UPMC, like, again, really make sure you master that job because line producing, you are responsible for the entire film, for the cast happiness, the director's happiness, the studio partnership, the health of the budget, keeping your accounting department happy, So really making sure you have all those skills before you move up. And, you know, interpersonal skills is half the job. And I think a lot of people move up fast, just wanting to know how to produce and not lean enough into I'm responsible for the joy on this set every single day and making sure that you're setting a really high bar so that people show up and feel good about being there because it's a very hectic environment every day. How would you say the line producer role differs from what the UPM does on, I'm jumping ahead and skipping around, but now that you work at Netflix and you're in more of a studio sort of world, how do you see those two roles be delineated? Because in my experience in the indie side, oftentimes you're wearing both hats. You are a LP UPM. So I've always done both jobs. I've, I've only had one show where I've had a counterpart and I was like, oh, this is, this is really nice. Like, wow, this is what it should be like all the time. And even then, I think we delineated the responsibilities differently than other teams would because we had a working relationship, a pre-existing working relationship. But I'm curious, like how, you know, how you guys would normally break it down. On the big, big budget projects, there's usually a line producer, a UPM and a supervisor. And your line producer is, of course, biggest picture focused on the director, the schedule, the big overview of the budget and the relationship 
with the studio, all the big high level production planning, your UPM is more grounded, working closer with the production accountant on building out each department's budget and working really closely, understanding the the labor and the spend in each department, and then signing the time cards. And your your producer is signing the checks, but the UPM is really signing the time card and the day-to-day AP. And then if the show is so big that you have a supervisor, the supervisor is usually off-running, off-production, like your your rigging team, your set deck team, um, and any any of the the departments that have off-production work. That sounds very nice. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what's interesting, too, is like, on the lower budget shows, yeah, it's compressed. And maybe there's one line producer with just a production coordinator and they're splitting all those duties. That's why just every show is has got its own footprint. It's so different. And I think there's value to like, if, if I would make advice to anyone listening, it's like, if you can get on a show where you are wearing more hats than you normally would, I think it's really important because you get to touch a lot of different aspects of different positions yeah. quickly. But then stepping into a show that has more structure to the different positions so that you can master what the coordinator does. Because I, because I've worked in so many different kinds of projects, like I've learned that every time I start a new show, I actually have to sit down with the production team I hire and go, and what are you normally used to doing? And what are the things that you're normally responsible for? Because people just do so wear so many hats that if you don't like set the stage of expectations, you'll be making assumptions about what somebody's doing. And then you learn three weeks into prep that, oh, they haven't been doing that. So I learned that um, the hard way in one of my shows that it, it just varies so much sometimes. And so I think if someone is able to get both of those experiences, I think there's tremendous value to both, you know, and then you can kind of see which one is really your cup of tea? Like some people want to be with these bigger teams where they have a very clear lane that they're in and master that lane. And some people like being able to work with a smaller team and just kind of um, learn a lot more on the fly. You know, it's kind of based on your appetite. And I think the, the project itself informs that. The creative always informs it. I mean, I think I can't imagine doing a show with just like a line producer and a coordinator. I feel like that would kill somebody. You know, uh, somebody is going to have a panic attack at some point because it's just too much work for two individuals, yeah. you know, regardless of what their title is. Production is the heartbeat of any show. Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station. You know, we really are. And if that is defunct, it's going to be really hard to keep the whole thing healthy and alive and thriving. And so, you know, I think that's the first thing on, on indie projects that sometimes producers or financiers will try to do is cut down the production team or the accounting team. And I always have to fight tooth and nail to be like, absolutely not. Like, it's not sustainable because it, the work just falls on all those people, you know. But back to you, um, you know, I think I asked, but I skipped ahead. So then given what you thought producing was when you started and what you know it to be today, how do you define a producer? It's like the overseer. The the They're responsible for executing the director's vision. That's actually how, in a nutshell, I would break it down. And that's through all the responsibilities of executing that vision is building the production plan, which is building out your budget and building out your schedule figuring out the best place to go shoot, which is such a big conversation now because it's such a global world and there's strong production cities all over the world and there's great incentives. So 
really building out that production plan of your budget, your schedule, and where are we going? And and all the while mm-hmm. keeping the studio happy and staying focused on your director's vision and making sure the whole crew is aligned. Yeah, it's a lot of sp- a lot of plates to spin. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest difference then between a production executive and a producer? So at the studio, I'm not building the production plan. I'm partnering with the line producer to be their thought partner and them bouncing ideas off of us, but also keeping them compliant with studio policy and studio rules. So want them to build out the the best production plan for the show and I'm making sure it fits in with it with the studio's vision as well. We work very close with our creative partners to make sure we're we're getting the visual, but we're staying within you know the budget parameters as well. Yeah. So you were you're you're moving along, you know, you're you're going up the ranks. At what point do you take your job as a VP of physical production at Legendary? Was that your first studio job? Were you basically just kind of freelancing before that? And and what at what point in your career did you do that? And then what made you decide to go that route versus perhaps staying the freelance route? I was always interested in going in-house. But in 2008, single mother with an eight-year-old daughter living in LA. I was very lucky because the production world had started moving outside of California and outside of the United States, but I kept getting Los Angeles-based jobs. And then at a certain point, starting in 2008, I did not. I got my first call to go to Atlanta. I didn't have any other shows calling me at that time. And so I went to Atlanta and I pulled my daughter out of her school in LA and off we went and she did it, pulled her away from her dad and did half her school year in Atlanta, did that for fourth and fifth grade. Once she got to seventh grade, she said, I'm not going on the road anymore. And Carolina, I did not want to leave the business and I was not going to leave the business, but I also couldn't keep leaving town. So Ty Warren called me out of the blue from Legendary. He sent me an email and it said, would you ever consider a studio job? And he doesn't know this, but I burst out crying. All I wrote back to him was I wrote, I dream about it. (laughs) And he called me the next day and off we were. That is a beautiful story. Interview, got the job and it worked out. And it was really in honor of my daughter at the time, Carolina, and knowing this is the business and I'm, I'm not leaving it, but it turned out to just be a great segue and not a diversion. Mm. How are you handling even raising your daughter for those first eight years while juggling the lifestyle of a production coordinator of a person who works those crazy production hours, even in LA, what was that time like? There weren't as many working parents that were freelancers back then. There was a lot more, it was far and few between. And so you couldn't just say, I have my daughter's recital this afternoon, I've got to go, which is very accepted these days. You really just had to stay at work and neglect your child and work your 12 to 14 hour days And it, Carolina, it was very painful and it was very hard. And there weren't a lot of people with kids. So you just didn't, you just didn't talk about it. You just did the job. The women that I worked with that were on my team that are now doing supervising jobs, Carolina, they call me left and right and go, we don't know how you did this. We don't know how you did this. You never talked about it. You never said anything. And I said, I couldn't back then, but I'm glad now that our industry is so accepting of not just people being parents, but allowing us to step away when we need to, to, to make the priority 
our kids while we're still doing a good job. Why do you think that is? I mean, you've been in this business a long time. When do you feel like that shift started to happen? 10, 15 years ago. And you know what I really think drove it, Carolina, is that there weren't any jobs in LA anymore and everybody had to get on a plane and travel. So lots of parents were for the first time ever having to get up and leave their families for long periods of time over and over and over. So you get a job in London, you come home for two months, then you get a job in Vancouver, you come home, then you get a job in Atlanta, you go away for another eight months. And I just think the industry realized we have to find a balance here with our kids. And it just kind of happened naturally. And do you think we've reached it? Trick question. (laughs) It is a trick because I want to say yes, because my standard was so low. We're at this great standard now where I feel like there's this understanding is if you're being productive and doing your job well, it's okay if you're at your child's recital this afternoon because you're doing a great job. Just find that right work-life balance. And and so I think that's given people a freedom that I don't know how you top that. So that's why I think I think we're there, but I'm sure we can improve more some areas. I mean, I feel like a lot of the women my in my generation who I know who've recently, you know, had babies because everybody's kind of at that stage of life, like there is still this fear of I know a lot of them have wouldn't even like post on social media that they were even pregnant they don't even like to talk about it in job interviews because there's still this old school idea of like oh well if you're especially for women right if you're a parent if you're a mother then ugh, like what's your commitment gonna be to this and it seems tricky you know and I think it you still have to set these boundaries for yourself. And and I think there's a lot of people who have a, a more, are more open to this and want to find ways to create that balance, but not most people, it seems, you know, I think we get lucky with the, the people we choose to work with, but sometimes you just got to take a job and, and, and it isn't like that. I haven't encountered this, this challenge quite yet because I'm not yet a parent, but it is something that in this season of my life, I'm starting to think about a lot. And so it's very fascinating to me now more than ever, how women who have walked a similar path like me have done this previously, but even now, you know, how they do it. And even my friends now say it's just nearly, it nearly kills them every time because, you know, you can take your child on the road, sure, but you're still, like you were saying, after a certain point in their development, like they need to be in school, they need to have this consistency, you can't just like pick up and leave every time. And I think it's why we see so many women who had come up freelancers, line producers, etc, go in house eventually take these jobs that keep them at home, so that they can be present parent. And like you said, divert where they're putting their their um, talents versus leaving the business altogether. Yeah, but it creates a huge deficit in the in the next generation of women that are rising up. And I think it's why we see that sort of top top UPMs and top line producers and producers sometimes are often still men because they have the luxury perhaps to continue to figure out how to structure their lives around the the, the insanity of the production schedule. You know. Yeah, I think there's more and more women that have the grit and the tolerance for it. And and we'll continue to see them, women like us coming in and and figuring out that balance. Absolutely. You know, they they look at us, the younger women, and see that we could do it and they're inspired to to make it work. That's my hope. I keep talking to young women about it. I think it's, it's what we do. I mean, it's part of why I have this podcast, right? If like you inspire me, if I can inspire someone else who's maybe 20 coming up and not ready for that, but knows that like, okay, in a decade, 
things are slowly improving and and we have to collectively continue to bargain for ourselves, you know, as working women who do want to have this balance. And I think it's been beautiful to see there are a lot of men who are now also stepping into this role and want to also be a part of creating true gender parity, right? In this sort of like the the um, the equity of, of what it means to be a person just navigating this. So, you know, I still feel highly optimistic, but I've definitely been on a uh, roller coaster of emotions in the past few months, as you know, of just trying to figure out in the current state of the business what the future looks like, how we're going to get to the other side of all the issues that are being advocated for right now and come out holistically a better business because the model is a bit broken and it does make me concerned as someone who's invested almost 20 years of my professional life into it. How do we continue to elevate and create better livelihoods for ourselves, not just writers, but freelancers as well? The independent producer absolutely like suffers the same fate. And so For younger people that are coming into the business, I sometimes wonder if they look at what's going on and what propels them to stay the course because it it can feel very dire, I think. But I don't know. I haven't been here through some of the other bigger sort of magnetic shifts that the business has had to make and perhaps it feels similarly. I don't know. Maybe you can can speak to that because you've been here a bit longer. My advice to everyone, and this is what I tell myself every day, Carolina, is to be nimble. To be in this industry, you must be nimble. And the best lesson I've learned working at Netflix, and you can learn this anywhere, but like change is consistent and you can either (laughs) out and you can resist it and you can fight it and you can be left way over there or you can lean into it and ride that wave and be nimble. And in order to ride that wave, I'll say it one more time. You have to be nimble. You have to be flexible. You have to be open. I spent 20 plus years working in film um, and was even working in film at Netflix and the series team called to see if I wanted to switch over and join them. And I did, Carolina, because I'm nimble. And I was able to do it because I'm nimble, but I made the choice to do it because it is not a film dominated industry anymore. Series is in their golden era. And I feel like it's a hybrid model now. And so if you were working in regular network series and there's less of that, or you were working consistently and mid-sized budget and there's less of that, become nimble and lean into learning this new hybrid of series or do a different type of film than you've done before, but figure out a way to spread yourself across the business and be able to work in any of the different areas. Yeah, it's like you have to diversify yourself. Yeah. As your own portfolio of what 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 you can do because if you stay nimble then you always have a lot of different pathways that you can pivot into, you know, of what what all the different things you can do. And Carolina, the people that I've seen survive at the production companies, the people that I've seen survive in the business and rise to the top have all been very nimble. No, I think that's a really good note. Mm -hmm. Flex and bend, never compromising yourself. So that's important. Being nimble just means riding that wave of change and understanding what it is and not fearing it and leaning into it. So you've never had at any point during your journey, a moment where you've contemplated leaving the business? Nope. No one's ever tested you? At one point, um, I was doing a ton of inclusion work at Netflix. And this woman who was starting up an inclusion team came to me and she said, would you, you know, you really lean into this. Would you ever want to work in inclusion? I said, nope, never. I will never, ever leave production, but I also will never give up my passion for inclusion. I'm always going to do that work, but I love production. My only, should I move here or there was 
should I be in-house? Should I be freelance? But outside of that, I knew I wasn't going anywhere. Do you think you would ever go back to freelance? Yeah. You know, that's a part of being nimble. And that's a part of really accepting that change is consistent because the turnover at the studios is not what it used to be. Like I was saying earlier, back in the day, you may go into, let's say, Sony at 21 years old and retire at 64. It's not that way anymore. People are staying at companies two to five years. 10 is like a lifetime these days. So I would say even having this job at Netflix and feeling secure, I'm always thinking, what if, what if, what if? And I would I would go back to freelance if if I was put in a situation where I wasn't at Netflix. And what do you think you would do? Do you think you would go into like line producing series? Do you think you would go to film or would you just do any, any of it? Would you be open to any of it? I would be nimble and open to change and I would do all of the above and I would want an agent that would pitch me for both. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's your episode title, Nimble Noel. That's you. <laughs> you know, when they play those games where they're like, introduce yourself with a letter. That's like, that's your word, just so you know, yes. you got it from you got it from from yourself. I'm just holding up a mirror. Um, let's talk about representation. And then I want to get into a little bit of um, the Netflix Shondaland uh, producers inclusion initiative, which is super important. Have you felt a difference? Or what rather, what is the difference that you have felt being a woman in this space from when you started till now. Makes me want to cry, Caroline. I have to take a deep breath. Uh, yeah. Okay. Being a woman of color in the 90s on film, I was the only one. I would go on movies where there was 500 people and I would be the only woman of color. And I just couldn't believe it. There was so few of us that literally like there may be like a, I'm going to make this up, but like a black guy in construction, me in the production office. And then like maybe one of the guys in grip was Hispanic and we would high five each other through the whole show. Cause we were all we had. And now you go to sets, especially in series and you see inclusion and you see the effort. We have a ton of work to do. We are not even close to being equal but the doors are open and I can walk onto a set and I can see the difference in the skin color and the balance between men and women. It's like 50% better than it was just in the, just in the early nineties. I mean, it's remarkable because I feel like the focus towards this change really has only been in the last decade. I feel like it's only in the last five years. Even then. So if we were able to make this progress in five years through a pandemic, imagine where we'll be in 20 years time. So I think it's really incredible. It has to be baby steps, unfortunately, but I think that's how we change the system and how we not only from a production standpoint, but how we diversify Hollywood as a whole, because if you don't have um, executives of color and people of color, every aspect of this business, it's, it's just, it just, that's no longer acceptable, you know? And I think that, sure, is there maybe a bit of like, overcompensating right now of like, we got to just get a woman of color in this role, even though there's others who maybe are more qualified, potentially, but to me, that's like, how else are we going to take, you know, elevate the the people that have been marginalized if we don't take risks and give them the opportunities to shine like we're going to have to exactly, yeah. we're gonna have to go okay maybe they're a little less qualified but why is that <laughs> well because they haven't been given the opportunities to have the same resume where you could just blindly remove the name and be like 
all things equal, sure, but we're not quite there yet. But my hope is that in 10, 15 years time that we really do reach that and we can just hire the best person for the job, knowing that the pool is already so diverse that we never have to question what that split is, you know? I want to go back to, you said a key thing for me, which is a little less qualified. We are a little less qualified because we haven't had as much opportunity, but there are people who are qualified and you know what happens when they show up? If Noelle Green shows up for a job that Joe Blow has been doing always, people are going to expect Noelle to show up like Joe Blow. And when Noelle doesn't, there's disappointment because of the expectation. Mm. So we have to really go back and reset those expectation levels. Equality means we're going to have a lot of different people in the room and they're all going to do things slightly different. And we have to be ready for that. Yeah, no, that's a great a great point. And I think especially with as pe- people with hiring power, and even if you're a young producer putting together your first short film, like these are important things to note regardless that you can really make a change in how you empower someone at any stage of your career. And that I think as producers, as executives, like it's our responsibility to take those risks, you know, and, and we do have to fight for, for our people, for, for women, for people of color to be in those rooms until we hopefully no longer have to take on not the burden, because that sounds negative, but the responsibility of not just being good at our jobs, but then also having to take on bringing up the entire community with us. And I can't wait for the day where we all can just like exhale and just focus on the work and not have to have it, have to have these inclusion, you know, initiatives to begin with. I feel like we need to reach a point where that is moot, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You know, say now, Carolina, no more panels, no more discussions. I'm t- I can't. Just mixers and networking because that's where people are meeting people. That's what I say. I'm like, enough toasting about it and talking about it in a room. Just hire someone. Just take a chance on someone. And for me, it's like I'm at a point where I'm a little bit cynical about it all, I, I especially when it comes to the Latino community, which is still so far behind some of the other communities. It's like, I want people to get up on these panels and tell me what are the micro ways that they're they're taking their name and their brand and helping elevate the next up and coming uh, Latino writer. Like, don't talk about this in a, in a room about what the issues are. We know the issues. What are you actually doing on the day to day about it? Who are you elevating because your star has been one of the few that has been selected by anointed by the 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 deities of Hollywood to be at this next level you know that's what I want to know that's inspiring that's action that's change otherwise it's just the same people constantly like congregating in a room talking about gosh we really need to help our community don't we yes yes we do (laughs) cheers to that okay let's do something about it let's you know what let's throw another panel that's what we need it's like no no more panels no more initiatives just just hire people train them give them opportunities and I think that's why I'm I'm so excited that you were part of spearheading the the producers inclusion initiative, which was focusing on underrepresented people specifically in the line producer role. Which anyone listening knows that like I yap about this all the time. The importance of that role, the importance of anyone who wants to be a producer, even if you just want to be creative in the long run, actually understanding what that role is and having a baseline of knowledge of how to do that job well, because it's going to make you a better holistically a better producer. Um, So talk a little bit about 
coming up with this with this program and i know some of the the data that you guys you guys found and how like shocking it was <laughs> i remember when you when we talked about it so just yeah t- talk to me a little bit about that so with my experience in the 90s i've always wanted to make a difference and i wasn't sure what it would be but now being a production executive at a company that is hiring the line producer there's an opportunity there and Sarah Fisher at Shondaland um, is head of production there. She feels the same way. So she and I were standing on stage, I think it was two and a half years ago for WPS, just having a conversation about, isn't it frustrating that there are not enough people of color line producing? And isn't it frustrating that even less of that pool is is women? Like there's just not enough people of color and women in that seat. How can we make a difference? You work at Netflix you work at Shondaland, those are very powerful places that both support inclusion. Let's start to put a program together. So we got in a room with two or three other people and started flushing out what the plan would look like. But it was this, there's a good old boys club out there where Joe Blow was born into this family of line producers and he can go from A to Z in two years. There's not enough people of color in the industry or women that have that have been able to create a good old girls club or people of color club. We don't have that. It doesn't exist. So Sarah and I were like, that's what our program will provide. Our program will be go out and look for upcoming UPMs, upcoming supervisors, 10 at a time into a nine week training session. And when they come out on the other side of the training session, we've built a speed rail to meet other executives throughout the industry, to meet other agents, to meet agents throughout the industry and to meet your peers to meet other people that you can call and get advice or line producers um, that may hire you in the future and help mentor you. And we've done two years of it now. And at the end of the first year, I think of the 10, three or four people signed with an agency and like CAA and APA and the big agencies and, and Gersh and Disney was very supportive and they met with a ton of people. And the, the point was to like, now you know more about line producing. Now you have a bigger network. Now we've gotten you from like where you are down here, way up here. And we're continuing to still work with all of them, Carolina, because it has to be ongoing mentorship until they're really in that seat and they've done it several times, then we'll let them go. But we just finished the second year in June Sarah Fisher and I met with one of the candidates today who is out here from New York, and he's getting courted by three or four different agencies. And one of them just got him his first line producing job. I mean, that's so incredible. Thank you for doing that work because it's necessary. And the specificity of focusing on line producers, I think is like, it just warms my heart, you know, um, because I know how hard it is. And, and I think even it's not just it's not enough to give someone an opportunity. It's not enough to do a one time program. It's really the consistency of it. And then to know that they're walking away having representation, because the other part of it is it's hard to break into the business, right? You can be off line producing projects in Arkansas all day long, and the big opportunities that can be career changing and, and life changing, frankly, still come from having representation because when head of productions or executives are calling and looking around for where are these diverse line producers, oftentimes their first stopping ground is the agencies, the agents that represent the below the line. Um, And so if we can expand their roster with these people that are at different stages of their career, 
I think that's how, again, in five, 10 years, we look and we can have a, a more diverse landscape of, of candidates. Absolutely. We have to do the work or the work won't happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so thank you and to Sarah Fisher for doing that work because it's important and it matters. So moving on to the challenges, right? I always like to dig into the hard parts of your journey. And you've been in this for such a long time that I'm certain you have a, a, a ton of experiences. How you've navigated yourself when you've had these insurmountable challenges that life and or the industry can throw at you. When my daughter was three, I got divorced and I was a production coordinator and I was freelancing. So working very, very long hours and making good money, but not great money. And we sold our house, moved into an apartment with my daughter. And I remember collapsing on my bed the first night and going, I can't afford this and I don't have the time. So I'm going to go broke and be a bad mother. I don't know how I'm going to climb out of this hole. And I did have to deal with some financial downturn at that time. But honestly, Carolina, I dug into that grit and just went, if you don't figure out how to do this, you're going to sink. And that's not an option. You're not going to sink. So be tied on your financials, but keep working and bring on a babysitter and just try to find someone who will build a bubble with you to protect your daughter and just become as headstrong as I've ever been. But that was a huge, huge lull for me and a really scary time being in the industry and not wanting to leave it and having to try to figure out how to pivot and elevate myself. Yeah. And the second hardest part for me was um, that last job in my freelance life. I went to Vancouver, Canada. I went and found a neighborhood with a good school, moved into the neighborhood, went out, found a babysitter, did my normal setup for when I went on location and called my daughter and said, okay, we're living in Kitsilano and this is the school you're going to. And we have a view of the beach. And I got all excited when she was, when I was done, she said, mom, I'm, I'm not coming. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I'm going to stay in LA where my school is and where my friends are. And I, again, I had to spend that whole show going back and forth between LA. I remember I spent $8,000 on airfare on that show. Wow. Going back and forth. And it's again, like this business isn't for everyone, Carolina. And people think that it's glamorous and fun, but it's really hard work and grit. And you just have to keep going back and digging into that or you just, you don't survive that that's being a mother and the challenges of being a mother and a single mother in the business. The other challenge is, of course, being a woman in the business. Believe it or not, I had less frustration in freelance and more in corporate with being a woman. Mm. And the boys club is a real thing. And what happens is that water cooler talk or getting invited to lunch. It's like the guys just like to be around the guys. And when you're a woman and you come into the room where the guys are talking about being guys, it's like you bring in a different energy and it can cause friction and discomfort and annoyance. And so you find yourself trying to turn into a guy to fit into the boys club. And I have done that my whole career until probably five years ago when I really got into WPS and met this fabulous group of women and understood like, we can have our own club where we can lean into each other. There's so many women at Netflix now, Carolina. I think it's 50-50 men and women Wow, that you feel a lot more empowered to just show up as yourself. But the vo boys club is still very much alive. And I had frustration with it just last week. Yeah. You have to just 
keep figuring out, and I've said this a lot on this, this conversation with you too, is like leaning into it instead of leaning out of it. Leaning out is when you get left in less field. Leaning into it is when you will figure out your path of survival. How do you learn how to play within the boys club, play your part, but still know that at the end of the day, that's not really where you're going to get whatever you need done. You're going to have to find the other communities of predominantly women, most likely to uh, elevate and to work out, you know, all the frustrations that come with this industry. I'm pretty in tune with my strengths and weaknesses. And so I know where I can really lean in with my strengths on my knowledge and my experience. So not being afraid to speak up in the room with the boys and just saying like, when I know I have a good thought, a good opinion, good experience to bring to the table, like really lean into showing up with your ideas, not being intimidated to say them and being able to walk away from it and not stick around for acceptance or acknowledgement or trying to fit in. In fact, don't try to fit into the boys club. Just know what you can bring to the table and bring it to the table. Don't worry about getting invited to the golf games on the weekend. Don't get caught up in going to the basketball game and having beer. Just focus on your day-to-day and what you bring to the table and don't worry about anything else. And by the way, these days, there's a huge group of women waiting with open arms, and that's where you can go hang out. I sound very separate. There's a lot of commingling amongst men and women, and we have come a long way from where we used to be the boys club still exists. So that's just me acknowledging it. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge. And I I think it would be um, disingenuous of us to not acknowledge and to be like, it's kumbaya out there. Because while two things can be true in the same sentence, while we do have the arms of loving women and men who embrace us and want to support us, there, there is still this system and this closed guard that you encounter at some point in your journey. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I think maybe, I don't know, in like four, 30 years time, when a lot of the old guard dies down, we'll see a truly completely transformed industry. But I still I still think it's, it's important to note that just because we are living in this time where it's never been better to be a woman or a person of color in the business, we have a long way to go, but it's never been better of a time. Yet, we are still going to encounter this issue. And I, I I think it's important to know how to navigate that. And no one really teaches you this stuff is the other part. Like I have had to learn the hard way that those, those people are never going to embrace me in the ways that I want to, because I will never be enough because I'll never be a man, (laughs) you know, like truly I'll never, even, even if I was a man, I would still be a Latino man. I would still be struggling with that, right? So yeah, I think knowing your place and knowing what what value you bring to the table and just showing up and having the courage to just bring that and not put too much inventory on the other stuff is what I'm hearing is is the takeaway. So I think that's... And creating your own club and not looking at anybody else's club because who cares? If you have a happy place, nothing else matters. Yes, 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 yes. Final question here before we move on to the lightning round, which is a series of five fun questions that takes us out of the interview. With the ongoing writer's strike, the whole uncharted territory of AI and how that's going to impact our industry, our world, certainly it's a lot more clear and how it will impact what writers do. But how do you see AI potentially impacting the future of physical production? 
I hadn't thought about that because I'm so with the strike right now, I'm so focused on how it affects the writers and SAG. That's a really good question. And my mind went immediately to the, the technical things happening on set, the camera, the grip equipment, the electric equipment, how much of that will become automated. I don't know about the AI part of it, though. I think what could a machine replace another machine? That's what I want. But <laughs> operating the machinery and that kind of stuff and coming up with the shot listing instead of the director and the DP. I don't know. I think there's a world where AI, to me, I think AI can be really helpful in a tool that we use to create a first draft of things of plans, right? So you could tell an AI, all right, AI, like, tell me a schedule of like, you input all the data, right? Which could be really helpful to say, I want to shoot for this 30 window of time with this amount of cast and this amount of minors, and we're going to be doing X, Y, Z, shoot me a plan of how we would in theory do this based on these input inputted elements that still is done by a human. And I think it would cut out a lot of the work that maybe what is initially the first draft of like a schedule or production plan. You know, you could tell the AI, tell me where is best to make this movie given all of the, you know, where... With a tax incentive are all the places that have mountains that I could be at. You know, it can really kind of d- dilute some of that, but I still think you'll have a human needing to comb through that data because it's still quite not advanced enough. And then I also wonder, will it impact reducing some of the redundancies in the workflow that a lot of like coordinators and a lot of people in the production office experience to free them up to do other more interesting work? Like, I don't think it's, Personally, I I choose to believe that it's not here to like replace us. But if we look at it in the right way, it can actually alleviate some things. So perhaps a coordinator's day doesn't have to be a 14 hour day becomes a 10 hour day. Because there's these things that AI and computers can really take off their plate that just is the mundane part of the job anyway, that they don't really like to do, you know. Um, So you know, I think I think that sort of answering the question I posed to you. But as I think on it, I, I could see value in how we could imp- apply these technologies into the workflow to support and improve what we're doing, but not replace anything really. And that's what I hope we, we reach. Yeah. AI scares me and I'm very, very against it. Why does it scare you? I don't want humans to be replaced with machines. And the truth is like the SAG fear of dubbing is scary for actors and the WGA fear of like that program already writes scripts. I would hate for machines to take over <laughs> the world. I, I have a real fear yeah. of um, it replacing a lot of humans. Yeah, definitely don't want to turn a blind eye to it because it's coming. Yeah, it's it's here. It's here. <laughs> it is here. <laughs> well, before we move on to the lightning round, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share a little bit of your journey and your wisdom with me and the listeners. Like I said at the top, it's it's how we grow. It's how we stay the course in this really challenging career path that we've chosen. A lot of people who listen aren't even necessarily producers, they're filmmakers. And just for them to hear some of the, the challenges and the struggles and the beauty of of what we do, I think helps us become a better, more well-rounded and compassionate industry as to with the humans and the hard work that is actually required to do what we do. To your point, it's not glamorous. It's not lucrative sometimes. And so for anyone listening, I encourage them to stay the course because you're not alone. So yeah, 
Thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation and an important one. Good. Well, no, thank you. It's, it's an honor. Okay, so here is the lightning round. It's five fun questions just to take us out. Okay, so what is a song that teleports you to a happy place? Pleasure Principal, Janet Jackson. Wow. Okay, she had that ready to go. You know what? I just saw her in concert, and that song makes me so happy. It's my favorite song. Oh, God. Okay, I love that. Okay. What is the latest piece of art that moved you? It can be a book, a film, a show, etc. I just went to the Basquiat exhibit and was deeply moved by his work. Just like a deep, deep, deep eccentric thinker. Okay, fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. I can't tell you the truth. (laughs) Is it wine? Exercise. Okay, because if it's wine, that's what most people say. It can be both. It is wine, but it's exercise too. (laughs) Nice. What do you like to do? What's your jam? My, My wine or my workout? Both, I guess. Yeah. Or maybe you work out while you drink wine. I love Sauvignon Blanc and I drink it. I drink it so much. My daughter makes fun of me. Like she knows she'll have Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> and then exercise. Um, I like boot camp classes. Kick my butt. Yeah. That's said like a production person. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Travel. Travel's an investment. Like Caroline, I take three trips a year and I try to go to different parts of the world and now my daughter's doing the same thing at a very young age. We know we need to know our world better and understand the cultures around us and not be so siloed in America. 100%. And also, I think social media is not enough. You can't use that as your window into looking at other cultures or places because it's just, it's still smoke and mirrors. You have to physically be there and see the people. There's so much yeah. sensationalized. It's just the best to be in the world, in community with our humankind. It's like the best thing. I agree. Yep. Okay, so final question, um, and this is borrowing from Inside the Actor Studio, which is one of my favorite shows and um, kind of inspired, you know, what hopefully this show can become one day for producers and people in our business. But this is the question that he asks guests at the very end, uh, which is inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot. And the question is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You lived a good life and you are a good person. Honestly, I hope most people feel that way. And that's what most people want to hear. Because I think at the end of the day, I find myself telling me that Carolina, like, all the tough decisions I have to make, or all the stress I carry, like at the end of the day, I tend to look at myself with all the stress. And it's like, it's okay, you're a good person. That is a it sounds like a simple thing to do, but it is a revolutionary thing, I think, in our journey in this planet, like when you're able to figure that out for yourself, that the end of the day, that's kind of all you have. And that's why I always say, and I preach this, that this industry can sometimes really knock you off center. um, Because it is so hard. And there's so many personalities. And there's so many people that are here for different reasons and have different intentions. And I think if you can hold on to your integrity, and at the end of the day, no matter what, know that like, you're a good person, you did your best. And that's it. That's all you can do at any given day. It's so simple. It's like one of the four Uh, agreements of the four agreements, but it is actually really hard to do. And I feel like now in my 30s, I'm finally coming around to truly understanding and living that truth. And I wish I had figured it out when I was younger, it would have saved me a lot of headache, a lot of lot of headache and anxiety and depression and a lot of things. But you know, everybody's on their own journey on their own path. And I think as long as you get there, 
you can then detach a little bit from all of this having so much value and importance in your identity and in your experience on this planet. Absolutely true. You're very insightful, old soul. It's been a, such a pleasure talking to you. I have to tell you, when you said you were going to ask a question from Actors Studio, I had my curse word ready. What is your favorite curse word to tell us? When I am so pissed off, the only word that will give me relief is motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> It is delicious to say, isn't it? It's so funny. I like that MF -er or MF. Like that gives me relief. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a delight. Thank you again, Noelle. It's such a treat to spend this time with you. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Thank you. And you're right. You know what? The hour's up and I feel light and happy and like I want to go celebrate. (laughs) Good. You should have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. I will. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.